welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I am great as well. Great to be here with you as always. Same, same, same. I'm very excited for today's show. Today we are going to be talking about vanity in literature. Among other things, we'll discuss the literary characters who are just a little too pleased with themselves, from Dorian Gray to Patrick Bateman, and ask if writing a book itself can be an act of vanity. Oh my god, very meta. Always meta. (laughs) Always bring in the act of writing into our discussions. (laughs) We're so excited that our author guest today is the inimitable Deborah Levy, who joined us for a live event at Foils in London to talk about her latest novel, The Man Who Saw Everything. In addition to being just a great novel that I think we both enjoyed a lot, it features a beautiful, vain, frustrating, intriguing protagonist named Saul Adler. Octavia, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Deborah Levy? I mean, with absolute pleasure. Great. Deborah Levy is a British playwright, novelist and poet. She's the author of seven novels, including Booker Prize shortlisted Swimming Home and Hot Milk. Deborah is also the author of an acclaimed collection of short stories, Black Vodka, which was published in 2013, and two living autobiographies, Things I Don't Want to Know and The Cost of Living, which has been recommended on the show before. I'm sure I recommended it because I think it's one of the most extraordinary things I've read recently in nonfiction. There you go. I want to read it big time. She's written for the Royal Shakespeare Company, and she's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. The Man Who Saw Everything is her latest novel. It was long listed for the Booker Prize, and it's very, very good. Yes. So today we'll hear our live interview with Deborah. We'll talk a little bit more generally about vanity in literature. Do you consider yourself a vain person, by the way? I mean, I'd love to say no, but it would be a lie. (laughs) Yeah, I think I am quite vain, and I struggle to accept my vanity as part of myself. Well, I think we all have a little bit of vanity in us, and I think we'll be talking a little bit more about that in our discussion. I think we might. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it like stoking the fire of your own vanity to talk about your own vanity? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think having a podcast is a pretty vain <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> We're already, the ship has sailed on oh, that Oh, burn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm burning myself along with you. Yeah, yeah. Just going up in flames. Let's do it, baby. In the studio. <laughs> um, and we will also be giving our usual book recommendations. So join us for the next hour because you probably think this podcast's about you. Yes, girl. <laughs> Yes, so I think we'll start by just asking you to read a bit from The Man Who Saw Everything. Certainly. So this is my reading copy, and, um, and scrawled in it are a few quotes. This is one from James Baldwin. People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. I feel that kind of sums up this book, and I'm going to start on page one. Uh, The Man Who Saw Everything is in part about a man trying to cross a road for 30 years. It's also about a 30-year argument between Saul Adler, age 28 when the book starts, and 58 when the book ends and Jennifer Moreau, who is 23 when the book starts, and middle-aged when it ends. It's like this, Saul Adler. When I was 23, I loved the way you touched me, but when the afternoon slipped in and you slipped out of me, you were already looking for someone else. No, 
It's like this, Jennifer Moreau. I loved you every night and every day, but you were scared of my love, and I was scared of my love too. No, she said, I was scared of your envy, which was bigger than your love. Attention, Saul Adler, attention. Look to the left and to the right, cross the road and get to the other side. Then, uh, 20 years later, some photographs that Jennifer Moreau, who is an art student when the book begins, um, are exhibited in New York. And Saul Adler goes to have a look at them. And she's titled her exhibition, A Man in Pieces. He, uh, so they haven't seen each other for a while. And um, so no spoilers. I'm going to kind of jump a little bit in, in this passage. It's written from Saul Adler's point of view. So it's him speaking. They are at this exhibition. And then Jennifer saw me. Everything became slow and weird. I could feel her heartbeat, and I know she could feel mine. In her white dress, she walked towards me. The crowds parted as she made her way to where I was standing. She was mortal, and I was mortal. But her art was immortal and filled every wall in the room. I knew that she considered art itself to be bigger than myself and bigger than herself, but I was not that interested in art. Now she was facing me. Everything went quiet and queasy and still. I could hear her inhaling and exhaling, and I saw her again standing on the doorstep, having just pushed me out of her flat her camera in her hands. So long, Saul. You'll always be my muse. All my body was trembling. Hello, Saul. What are you doing here? I'm already here, Jennifer. I pointed to the photographs on the wall. I looked up and saw another image. It was the photograph of myself crossing Abbey Road when I was 28. This time, I noticed there were many other photographs, so many of them. Jennifer Moreau gestured to the walls. It's not about you, it's about me. I think that gives a good sense of the plot of the book and also how the book is written. And I love that description you've just given of a man spending how many years? 30. 30 years trying to cross the road. Um, but just to start to set up the book a bit, um, this novel begins in 1988 when Saul Adler, who is a historian who studies communism, is hit by a car on the famous zebra crossing on Abbey Road. And, and that's such a powerful scene, and it's a scene that recurs and sort of reinvents itself throughout the novel. So what appealed to you about that location, but also <coughs> this happening? Yes, well, I think it goes back a long way, because um, I was born in South Africa, and we left when I was nine. And when I arrived uh, in the school playground, I was the only kid who'd never heard of the Beatles. I, I hadn't watched the same TV programs all the, all, all the other kids my age had watched. So I think that 
I think I had something to, something to do with that. Just, you know. So I listened to them just to, so, so I could join in in the playground. And the second thing was the, the place, uh, Abbey Road. I used to sit on the wall um, when I was researching, when I was researching the man who saw everything, watching tourists from all over the world cross, cross the zebra crossing. And I really enjoyed watching people fool about and, um, and imitate their, their favorite beetle. And I thought, this is a moment in history. This is history sort of being um, a history being played out in uh, 2016 when I, was, when I was writing the book. Um, and it's quite dangerous to fool around on a, on a pedestrian crossing. <laughs> And, um, and I began to think about, um, you know, all these, they have, they have to walk very quickly before they get run over. So I researched the original photograph uh, taken by Ian Macmillan for, for Abbey Road. And um, he took, he had 10 minutes and a policeman held up the traffic. So then I was also thinking about male beauty. And I thought, well, a beautiful man could cross the Abbey Road. And I was interested in how you sort of don't know where the crossing, where a crossing starts and begins. And could I design a book that sort of crossed over in time? So these are the kind of thoughts you know that uh, you have when you when you um, sort of dreaming up dreaming up a book. The other place that had equal fascination was the Berlin Wall, because I was 29 um, when it came down. And the Cold War, as it was called then, was, um, and called now, actually, was, um, <laughs> um, was, I sort of grew up with it. So it always, it, it always interested me. And I thought, well, what happens if a beautiful man kind of falls through the tarmac of uh, 1988 Britain into communist East Germany. And, and off I went. You had a book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we wanted to talk to you about male beauty because Saul Adler's beauty is very significant to his character development and his experience. And there's this wonderful tension between him and Jennifer Moreau where she forbids him from describing her, which I, I loved. It felt like a, a brilliant dig at the male gaze, which is something I'm always into. Um, and I wanted to ask you about, about how you feel about beauty, actually, and mm. how it, you know, what is it? Do you think we could have a society where it was less primary in, in our kind of hierarchies? Because Saul benefits a lot from his beauty, but it's not straightforward for him. Yeah. Oh, well, what sort of power yeah. does, does beauty give us all? Um, and what kind of, and what does it take away as well? There's something I think quite freakish about very extreme beauty and, um, and the way that we want to look at it. And, um, at, at, you know, when, it, when it's not a photograph, as, as in the scene that I've just read. Uh, but for Saul, 
I don't think enough is written. I don't know if there is much written about male beauty in, 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 in fiction by a female writer. I just don't, I, I, maybe, maybe you can tell me. So there's something important, though, in that, which is that given how women are objectified and sexualized and trivialized and, and, and the way they look endlessly described, I thought, well, let's flip it and see how Saul Adler feels about that. So he is objectified, actually, in this book, and he rather enjoys it. He's narcissistic. He, he um, is loving. Um, and the sort of male beauty that he has, because we don't really, we might not all agree on what beauty is, um, was very much taken from <laughs> glam rock. From um, when I was a teenager, it was Mark Bolan and it was David Bowie. And John Lennon uh, said that what David Bowie did was rock and roll with lipstick on. Yeah, that works. <laughs> They're both very beautiful. I thought of, um, what's his name, Noel Fielding a little bit as well. Definitely. Yeah, because yeah. Saul Adler has this black hair and these piercing blue eyes. So there's this, yeah, I, I mean, I, I dig Noel Fielding. So that was my... <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So what Glam Rock did um, when I was 13, 12, 13, um, was, you, you know, there was... There were so many rigidities of um, girls had to be girls and boys had to be boys, and what did that mean? And there was so much creativity inside every boy and girl. It was, and so when, when um, Bowie first appeared on top of the pops, um, I remember that we all used to, my brother and I, we used to have to hoover our house before our mother got home from work. And it was a terrifying moment that sort of we give ourselves three minutes, you know. And David Bowie came on, I think it was the Ziggy Stardust uh, time. I just remember looking at this, this and thinking, of course, <laughs> there he is, fly me away from the suburbs of West Finchley. <laughs> um, sprinkle us with your stardust. And the, um, and the boys at school that we hung out with were just as interested in the eyeliner pencils and the camera shop and miners' frosted blue, which we wore a lot, as the girls. We just all, we, we, we were all totally inspired because he opened up a space for us to play around, to fool around, just like this. Uh, uh, amazing tourists on that Abbey Road. There's a great line um, when Jennifer Moreau is describing her early work as an art student, um, and, and she says she's very interested in male beauty, and it was one of the reasons why she took so many photographs of Saul. And she said she was trying to figure out if the penis is what makes a man a man. <laughs> and I, I, it, that made me laugh, amongst other things. But um, but I think it's it, it does touch upon this idea of... Um, you know, gender bending and androgyny and beauty, especially in men, as at least the type that you're describing as t 
taking some of the things that are considered traditionally feminine and sort of putting them upon himself and experimenting and playing yeah. with them. So was that one of the questions that you yourself wanted to ask when, by, by having this sort of freakishly beautiful man who is, first of all, doesn't express masculinity in a traditional way always, although he definitely holds on to some He's traditional... He's quite entitled, yes, isn't he? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he has a lot of power. Yeah. Um, and, and also is, is queer in some ways, too. Yeah. Right. So, so this man is going to go to communist East Berlin, to the GDR, in 1988. So I wanted to throw someone like Saul into, <laughs> into East Berlin in 1988, because I was looking at authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And um, that this is a word in, in the air at the moment, authoritarianism, you know. Um, so let's just give, let, let's just have Saul in grey, Saul Adler in grey East Berlin. Uh, he's, he, he's going to have to figure out how he has to walk and how he, how he looks at someone. And, and um, he notices that there seems to be a woman selling cauliflowers and she's not looking at him and he's looking at her. And then he realizes that she's not looking at him because she could be reported for looking at a Westerner. And then with Walter Muller, his translator, his, his, his muscular and, and tender, isn't he? Because he, Saul is a bit lame when he arrives in, in um, East Germany. One day a mirror smashes in the flat in, in East Berlin. And Walter and Saul take a side each and they put it up. And Saul sees Walter looking at him in the mirror. So remember the title is The Man Who Saw Everything. So which man then, or what? Uh, sees, Saul look, sees Walter looking at him in the mirror and he thinks, what's that look? He realizes it's desire. And, um, and that thrills him. And he, he's a minor historian and it gives him an opportunity to point out that that look will never, can never be deleted. He's, he's seen it, Saul, he's claimed it. And, um, and Stalin always deleted anything that was, um, that, that, that he disagreed with, and, in, and that was inconvenient from the historical record. So I was looking at how Saul was never going to delete that, nor was Walter, from the history that they were making together in, in 1988. So the book sort of echoes the, those sort of themes as well. That's a, another sort of surveillance when we desire someone, um, the, 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 you know, um, that's, that's also sort of surveillance, isn't it? Yeah, you, you focus the lens literally on that with Jennifer Moreau being a photographer. Yeah. But also this idea of, of seeing, in a more metaphorical sense as well, like how do you see reality? And there's a refrain that comes back throughout the book, 
like the the road crossing as a visual refrain and a yes. kind of embodied refrain, but then you have the the words which you read in the opening section. It's like this, Saul Adler, and she respond. He responds, "It's like this, Jennifer Moreau." And I loved it because it's it's like what you know, and they're often presenting very different versions of what it's like, and it really got me thinking about how you know, listening to you talk just then about about history and what we claim and delete from you know, the, the annals of history on a personal level as well as on a broadly political Definitely. level. Definitely, because if, if um, there's a joke in the book when um, Saul Adler gets run over, uh, the driver gets out of the car and says, oh, well, you know, you you stepped onto the crossing and then you step, change your mind, step back, and then you lurch forward. And Saul says, uh, yes, the driver was giving a version of history that was that that was told in his favour. So, this book is about a sort of braiding of history and memory and feeling, and the, and, and looks at the ways in which history is told, personal history, and and political history. So, if we think about our history. Um, and how we tell it. We will more or less tell it in our favor, I think. And now and again, we get a sort of odd moment of truth. We say, oh no, actually, I was in a really bad mood. And, and you know, you'll kind of make a correction. So we're all deleting things from the conscious record, maybe, but not from, but our unconscious comes back to sort of tap on the door and say, but do you remember this? And what about that? And so I was trying to get some of, some of, some of that atmosphere um, in the book, how, how Saul relays his history and how others relay it back to him and the history that's explored in the book, which is 1988. What you just said about things that are and aren't said, one of the things in Saul that comes up again and again, for me anyway, I took him to be a character who's terrified of vulnerability, actually. Um, and he very rarely says what he means. Um, it seemed to me when I was reading it, there were times when I, especially in his relationship with Jennifer, I, I desperately just wanted him to, to say the right thing. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I wondered, because there's, there's a thread throughout the book that's about masculinity, and about Saul's relationship with his father and brother, who are very different from him and embody a much more traditional masculinity. And, and there's tension that you explore between them and him mm. that runs along the seam of him being a more feminized character, I suppose, and how he presents. But I wonder if you see that, um, well, maybe you don't see it actually as an inability for him to be vulnerable, but if that was something you were exploring within the context of masculinity, or if that's just my interpretation. Fair enough. I mean, we were talking earlier, and I said to you, um, do you hate Saul, or do you like him? And what did you say? I said I, said I, li I liked him a lot. I, I actually identified with him a bit, which is, don't hold that against me when you read the book. <laughs> but um, I, 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 what I said to Deborah is that so I felt great. that his, uh, he's, he is a narcissistic character, but that, and that his narcissism, I could get there if I took the brakes off. You know? Go for it. <laughs> I enjoyed, that's why I enjoyed spending time with him, because I think that's what's amazing about literature, where you, 
you get to try on different personalities for size, or you get to experience some another character, a more extreme character's way through the world, and and learn something about yourself in relation to it. Or, or, or maybe it serves as a bit of a warning in this case. But um, yeah, I liked him. I liked him, and I oh. and I was disappointed. By him. Can I also like just say mm -hmm. that was the first time an author has ever asked me if I liked a character in their book, <laughs> and and usually I think authors get really annoyed when people tell them whether they've liked their characters or not. And I wonder what prompted you to ask that. Okay, I'll tell you, because um, I give Saul Adler a lot of space to mess up, to make mistakes, to get things wrong, to misunderstand. And I suspect that you quite like that that we all need that space, okay? So, in the telling of, uh, uh, he's, he's behaved badly, right? I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but in the telling of that, as, as, as it unravels, he, he, he betrays Jennifer, he, um, he's got a problem with attach, attachment, Right, but haven't we all, actually? But I give him a big problem with attachment. Um, he's loving, he is vulnerable. He absolutely is vulnerable and he's also very entitled. Uh, so he's all these things and, and um, you know, we have to give characters as many dimensions as, as we all have. You have good days and bad days, and um, uh, so so I'm really so I'm really intrigued by you saying, well, actually, I could get there. I think that's great. I also wanted to ask you a little bit more to return to. You said I don't want to give too much away, and I'm I, I, I'm being mysterious. One of the reasons for that is that this is a novel that has mysteries in it, and and um, sort of a plot that unfolds in which you open new boxes and find out new things and that changes the way you see the story and it's one of the things that's really enjoyable about reading the novel amongst many other things having to do with prose and eyeliner and things like that. Um, but I, I, it made me think a little bit about David Lynch, the sort of pulpiness that you draw upon of a, of a mystery or a detective story even. Um, mm. And I wonder if that was something you were thinking of while you were writing and if that was something you really had to consciously construct in terms of what we learn about the story. It's quite noirish and, and mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I like a lot of um, suspense in a story, in a, in a novel. I like, a, I like quite old-fashioned things and very avant-garde things, and I like to braid them together. So I think there has to be a great deal at stake. Um, there, I, I, I do want to sort of, I do want to keep turning the page when I read, surprisingly enough. Um, and um, what else can I say? I don't really like talking too much about how I write. Um, what's important to me is, is to honor um, how coherent life is sometimes and how incoherent it is and how and, and to honor enigma uh, 
or all the, all the big mysteries. I mean, I just write big existential books and I borrow and I borrow from all those forms that you're talking about, Pulp and, 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 and Lynch and, and all the rest. It's, it's such a joyful part to be a reader of your work, the way that you play with language and the way that different words and sounds can trigger other associations. And I loved that in Hot Milk and I loved that again in The Man Who Saw Everything, where there's... Um, and it's, it's another way where I feel like you and David Lynch are working in a similar space that is, it enjoys the psychological. It enjoys, as you said before, honoring the unconscious. I love that as a, as a, as a way into that mode of, of reading and thinking and watching, you know? Um, it's, it's something that I think is a profound fact of living, right? That we take in things and we take things as symbols and we receive these stories, whether they're the stories of gender identity or mm. social structure or politics. But actually, it's very hard to get at what is different in how I understand it to how you understand it. Definitely. And also, um, uh, sort of pushing that language a bit um, in, in The Man Who Saw Everything. So, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Saul Adler, he's run over by a Jaguar. What happens? He looks at, the, at his reflection in the car mirror and there's a collision and the, the, his reflection sort of falls into him because the mirror breaks and, and some of it pierces his body. So that's a real thing. There are never symbols that are not from something, you know. Um, and then he goes to East Germany and he meets his translator's sister, Luna. You quite like Luna because you, you didn't like Saul, but you thought she was all right. Did I say I didn't like Saul? You're allowed to, you know. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and Luna has a phobia about cats, in particular jaguars. And you're thinking, oh, what's, what, what the hell? But who's telling the story? Who's my, from whose mind is the story coming from? It's Saul who's been run over by a jaguar. So, so Luna is, uh, is, is scared. She thinks that the jaguar's prowling around East Germany, East Berlin, rather. And Saul's very interested in, in this. And he would be, wouldn't he? <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't like Saul. I, <laughs> I mean, I have vested interest in asking you this question. I, just, I, I don't know. I don't really think about whether I like characters or not. That's a very good thing. I, I, I applaud that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't necessarily think I would want to have him as... I loved, I loved reading a book from his perspective, especially because I feel... I, I, I think you're right that there are so very rarely beautiful men in literature, who think so deeply about their own beauty. I mean, he's very reflective about it. Yes. Do you think there should have been more from Jennifer Moreau's perspective? <laughs> but I always thought... It's a real question. No, no, yeah. I'm, I'm answering it. I'm thinking out loud. But um, I always thought that we see Jennifer through the prism of Saul. And one of the things that I think emerges at the end of the book is that he doesn't really see her. 
he never has fully seen her um, and he sees beautiful parts of her but we have to have a restricted vision of her to 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 have that realization <laughs> definitely there's a, there's a bit towards the end where she, where he says uh, I know nothing about you Jennifer and she says we don't and she, he, she, she says well, well ask me some questions then that's a theme in my autobiography the cost of living he doesn't really want to ask her a question so there's a pause and he says your favorite color is yellow, for sure, for sure. We just leave it there. Yeah. But actually, do you believe him? Do you really believe that um, he knows nothing about Jennifer Moreau? Because I hope that you might believe that he does. He's just not, he's just not going to talk about it. But his actions, a, a, a certain kind of, um, <laughs> oh dear. It's terrible sticking up for your character. <laughs> What's that all about? What are we actually sticking up for? I suppose, I'm, suppose I, I suppose what I'm really saying is, um, I don't like I, I don't want to write characters who we completely understand or who completely understand themselves. Why? Why bother? You could just listen to nice music, you know. Um, so um, I'm invested in in um, in making him as inarticulate actually as I possibly can. And does he ever cross the road? Does he get across the road? You'll have to read and find out. <laughs> <laughs> Deborah Levy, you, it's yeah. been brilliant to speak to you today. I, if best. you haven't read The Man Who Saw Everything yet, I urge you to do it. It's, it's a brilliant book um, from a brilliant novelist. Mm -hmm. so, so thank you very much for speaking thank to us you. today. Thank you. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is vanity in literature. As we teased in the intro to this fine podcast, you know, I think vanity is, is quite a significant character trait. I think we both can agree that it's something that people have been writing about and thinking about for a long time. What is vanity? What does it mean? Is it a good or a bad thing? It goes back to the seven deadly sins and the myth of Narcissus. So literature is rich with vain characters and explorations of vanity. So I don't think we're going to have trouble coming up with things to say today. When, when you were thinking about vanity, what interested you most about how it works in, in literature? I think there's something about the human need to re-inscribe the, this 
the importance of the individual, right? Which is very much tied to vanity. But if you think about it in that sense, like the need that we have to believe our own personal story is interesting and valid. It's kind of tied to survival as well. You know, this belief that um, there is a significance to the life of the individual, whether that's explored through writing a novel that follows a particular person's trajectory or just the act of writing itself, like a writer's need to inscribe their own consciousness into the world in this very specific way. I think the art of writing and the art of reading can't be divorced from a certain sense of vanity, right? Because there's something self-important in both of them. Um, I think our interest in the stories of other people can be understood as an extension of some kind of vanity as well because a lot of the time when you're reading you're looking for similarities or you're looking for I don't know things that reflect on yourself I think it's I I don't think many people read without inscribing themselves into what they're reading somehow yes I I completely agree and I think that also gets at this idea of morality which again has been such uh so tied with the project of literature is is writing and reading a moral act. And I mm. think the question of vanity is is also tied up with morality. Is 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 there any sort of ethical good to being a little bit vain? Um, and when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, vain char- th- characters that we think of vain in literature, are they good characters? Um, and I think when you talk about genre fiction, especially children's literature, the answer is usually no, because I can't help but think about Harry Potter every time. I think. But but I was thinking about Tom Riddle, this character who becomes Lord Voldemort. And one of the main character traits that he has as a young man is he's incredibly handsome and incredibly vain, only thinking about her, himself an absolute narcissist. And, and that is supposed to telegraph to the reader, okay, this person is bad. Obviously, when you get to adult characters, it becomes more complex. And I think it's because vanity itself it definitely has negative connotations but without any vanity it's an act of self-erasure I mean nobody can live in the world without some modicum of self-belief you know we live our lives negotiating that balance and I think a lot of literature is about that I agree I mean I also think that acts of heroism can also be deeply vain Mm. but they you know it's a different kind of vanity the kind of vanity that we understand as morally wrong is tends to be the kind of vanity that's to do with um, appearance and achieving superiority over other people. But actually, there are other kinds of vanity that are more subtle, I think, that can be motivators for greater good. But I think that, I mean, I'm going back to Harry Potter, but like, you know, one of the things that those books do is, is draw parallels between Harry Potter and, and Tom Riddle Voldemort. And one of the ways in which they're, opposite ends of a similar spectrum is is their vanity and 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 Harry Potter's father is portrayed as being a little bit vain in that way Mm. himself but the vanity comes in in different registers and it takes them to very different places and I think that that happens I think that happens a lot in literature I mean like one of the characters that you and I both thought of was Emma in Jane Austen's Emma whose vanity is presented as, as quite harmless um, yet it has some negative consequences for a lot of, for you know the people or particularly her cousin um, and the vanity of assuming that you can meddle in the lives of others and, and create what you think you need right but ultimately it's all fine and everyone's quite nice and nothing terrible happens yeah. or you get to the other extreme of Patrick Bateman whose vanity is murderous and you know encapsulates the vanity of capitalism you know so it's I think it's a it's a rich territory for writers to explore because it can become symbolic of other things as well yeah and it's interesting I think the the more complex characters that we're meant to root for who are vain sometimes their narrative trajectory is learning to channel 
their vanity into different places rather than totally shedding it. Um, Like Emma, I was thinking of Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch as well, who is so vain that she believes that doing the right thing is marrying this awful man um, and sort of like propels herself into this marriage, which then she has to get out of and sort of learn some humility. But she doesn't lose her vanity necessarily. She just learns that doing the right thing is is a slightly different course. Right. And then you have characters who are very different, like Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby, whose vanity is quite tragic because actually, you know, she has all of this privilege and she has these riches, but she's a terribly beleaguered character. She's in this destructive marriage and she she kind of, she's a character whose vanity doesn't preclude us feeling pity for her, actually, which is interesting, and whose vanity doesn't really grant her any autonomy, actually, ultimately. Yes, and I think the more minor or secondary a character is, the more flat that yeah. kind of vanity becomes in terms of how it controls their experience of the world and also the experience of, of the main characters. Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly true in The Great Gatsby. Totally. And actually, I mean, less so in Great Expectations with Estella because she's a more major character. But, you know, Estella's vanity is interesting because it's learned. It's it's presented as not really being that innate, actually, when you understand the legacy that she is a part of and the way that her young mind was co-opted by this terribly damaged, traumatic person, Miss um, Havisham. Yeah, let's let's actually talk about beauty because I think we're we're talking about vanity in a more general sense. But I think the thing I was thinking when you brought up Estella is about women's relationship to vanity in particular, which often has a lot to do with beauty and also often has a lot to do with what women are taught is important and valuable in terms of their lives. Yeah. Um, And also because I think when we think about vanity, the first thing we do think about is beauty. And I think literature can be a very rich place to explore beauty, partially because we can't actually see the characters, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. But I think also it's really important to note that beauty privilege exists in literature as much as it does anywhere else. And actually, you know, a lot of characters in literature are beautiful (laughs) Mm. and I think that is such a good point. Yeah, it's true. And and it's interesting the ways in which they're beautiful changes depending like there's I read some great um a great essay and I cannot remember who it was by um recently about the current trend for kind of thin gawky uh privileged beautiful women like at, like along the lines of fleabag in literature and I think they referenced Marianne in um normal, normal people. people. And Sally Rooney's writing in, in general um, of these these women whose basically lack of fecundity in their body enables them to not be sexually voracious, but they have this gamine beauty that is intellectual. You know, it was a great essay, and I'm really sorry that I can't remember the name of the person who wrote it. Yeah, and and also these characters don't always realize their own beauty. Yeah. I think that's true of Marianne and Sally Rooney. Part of her power is that she's unaware of the fact that she is beautiful and yeah. very awkward in school. However the reader is made acutely aware of mm. her beauty and it's put across in a way that is desirable. And I think that is very interesting. Um, and the thing is, why you know, why write about beautiful characters? Well, they have more agency in literature, just as people who qualify as beautiful in the external world have more agency because they have more privileges. Um, and I think that it's complicated to write about characters that don't fit. Well, if you're writing about characters that don't fit those parameters, then you're writing an issue-based book, right? Which is which is a, a nightmare, actually. For It's a nightmare that that's the case. But then this made me think about the fact that because that landscape exists, to write a character who doesn't fit those external markers of, let's say, being, you know, able-bodied, white, 
usually blonde, blue-eyed, you know, the apex of heteronormative white imperialist beauty, let's say. <laughs> nice little mouthful. Um, when you write characters who don't fit those criteria and yet write about, talk about their own beauty, discuss their own beauty, it's actually kind of an act of resistance and it's very, very exciting. And a book that I um, found this in was On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous mm. by Ocean Vuong, whose main character, Little Dog, is not vain, um, in particular, but at a couple of moments he references his own beauty and it's it's beautiful the way that it's written because it's very incidental, but he just ex it, he expresses the fact that he finds himself attractive and gorgeous and he knows that he's gorgeous. And um, yeah, it felt, it felt very fucking exciting because this is not a blonde, tall, beautiful, like white, beautiful woman. It's a man of color, you know, and he's queer. And yeah, it felt it felt important. Yeah. And so often I think the beauty that you're talking about in characters is incidental. And what was interesting about the man who saw everything was to me, Deborah Levy was really interrogating beauty in a way that I don't think people often do in literature, even if the characters look like her character, Saul Adler, who's this very beautiful man. And I think you're absolutely right that if somebody doesn't conform to the standards of what beauty is in our society, uh, it has to be this essential character trait for them, which is, I mean, true to some extent in the way that we're forced to navigate the world, but but also a really sad thing. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right that it can be an act of resistance just to to break that down yeah. uh, and to really interrogate it. Totally. I also think there's been a real shift in the last, I guess, maybe 20 years in commercial literature where when you read, I find sometimes when I read books written in the 70s and 80s, especially by men, where there is such a heavy reliance on the physical descriptions of the women characters and that the way you introduce a character is to introduce their physicality first. And the style of writing that's in the mainstream has changed, I think, as a Thankfully, everyone has become a bit more awake to how minimizing and reductive that is. And it's you're much more likely to read books now where the lead character's physicality is barely described, which is is interesting. But it doesn't mean that vanity isn't part of it, which is also interesting. Yeah. And I, I would also argue just in terms of humanity, it, it's very difficult to be a very beautiful person and not be vain. Yeah. You know, it takes a very strong character uh, to do that. Well, I think. Because also part of that vanity when it's tied to beauty um, is to do with a fear of loss of beauty as well. And the reality is, again, the dominant standard of beauty is tied to youth and a particular sort of um, moment in your body's living life. And it degrades. We, we're all dying all the time, you know, like so to, to over identify with your sense of physical beauty means to be continually tied to the idea of loss. And that yeah. must be very frightening. And that's, of course, what Dorian Gray is. The exactly. portrait of Dorian Gray is about is that that utter fear of losing beauty when beauty is the thing by which you define yourself. And the thing that affords you your life, which it is for, you know, so many of these characters whose beauty and in, in fragility is tied to their identity, like Estella, for example. Let's let's go meta now. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's impossible to talk about vanity in literature without talking about, I think especially about memoir, um, because that really is somebody saying to their readers, my life is important enough that you should be reading about it. Mm -hmm, um, definitely. But, but also when you think about vanity in literature, you do think about literary undertakings of significant length that ask a lot of their readers. And what it means to embark upon that project and then ask others to read it. So, you know, things like Carla Van Asgard, of course, David Gravity's Foster Rainbow, Wallace. David Foster Wallace, yeah. Ulysses, 
what does it mean that these authors felt secure enough in their vision um, that they asked that they put these projects out into the world. Yeah, totally. Well, and recently there's been quite a lot going around about Lucy Elman's book, Ducks, Newburyport, which is a thousand pages. And I've seen a few people commenting that, you know, the outrage or the out- outrage is the wrong word, but like the raised eyebrows, I guess, are extra raised because she's a woman, because it's rare for a woman to write a book of that length. Do you, do you think that's fair? I don't know. To be honest, I think there are a lot of raised eyebrows about Carla Van Asgard as well. And if anything, a lot of the things I've seen around Dex Newburyport, and I obviously live in a bubble, are people just being so happy that a woman felt that she could write this kind of book and that people want to read it. Okay, well, let's talk about our recommendations for books about vanity. What's yours, Octavia? Mine is um, My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa Moshevik, who we had on the show. So if you want to catch up on that, you can find that conversation in our archive. Um, in many ways, it's 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 a thoughtful, very caustic meditation on vanity, actually, and the reality and emptiness of privilege in general, but also beauty privilege as part of that. I think it's a very smart analysis of those things. Just to give you a really quick synopsis, the narrator, who's nameless the whole way through, which is also interesting when you're thinking about it in the context of vanity and like um, trans describing the self into mythology. Um, she physically hits all the high notes of conventionally defined beauty. She's white, she's thin, she's blonde, she's tall, she's young. She's also lady, lazy, sorry, she's jaded. She can't bear to participate in reality. So she uses the privilege afforded by her social status um, to induce a chemical hibernation. She finds a quack psychiatrist who will prescribe her the drugs she needs. And she goes into essentially this uh, elective coma. Um, but I thought what was really interesting about that is it's it it seemed to me to be looking at the uh, kind of numbing out that vanity enables. If you prioritize the self above all else, then you become numb to the needs of the people around you, which is described in the book in her relationship with her very devoted best friend who she also can't really stand, who she kind of uses. But her solip system means that she's unable to connect. She's unable to trust. She's unable to experience the world beyond the limits of herself. Um, and she's ultimately very alienated and very lonely, which I think, again, brings some of this morality back into it. And the idea that vanity is something that keeps you separate and is not something to aspire to. It's something to keep an eye on. Um, and that, you know, vanity can be profoundly motivated by fear. And like we were saying before, fear of loss, but fear in general. So, yeah, I think it's great. And I think it's very smartly observed this character represents something of the current moment in a really mm. clever way. Mm. Yes, I completely agree. I love that book as I think it's very clear from the podcast we did with Yeah, Atasa we Moshevig were a bit and... rapturous. <laughs> rapturous. <laughs> but I, again, I think she's one of those writers who's really interrogating the idea of beauty in an interesting way. Same. What about you? Well, one of the books that I read during our summer break was Transit by Rachel Cusk. I loved it, first of all. It's the second book in her outline trilogy, all of which feature a middle-aged female writer named Faye. They're hard books to describe, but the best I can do is that they're a series of vignettes that depict conversations and interactions Faye has with other people, though there's very little from her. It's more about how she's experiencing what these other people are saying to her and signaling to her. Transit is about a lot of things. It's about domesticity. It's about change. It's about who we make our lives with and relationships and and about morality, actually. I mean, as everything is, maybe. But there's also this one amazing scene at a literary festival. Faye is on the panel with two male writers, one of whom suspiciously resembles Carl of Nasgard. I'm almost certain it is meant to be some 
sort of avatar for him. And they have this hilarious discussion about their art, which begins when they all have to run to the tent, like under this rainstorm, they're all dripping with rain. And it really does engage with vanity. Faye doesn't speak the entire panel. These two men tell their stories. And then at the very end, she reads this pre-prepared passage that she's written. It's hard to know what Cusk is doing because everything is so filtered by so many levels that I don't, I think it's hard to interpret what her interpretation of these. But Faye certainly experiences it as a sort of presentation of male vanity. And I think the books in a larger sense are about the stories that people tell about themselves and the vanity of that project in the first place and what that means. So I would really recommend reading this trilogy. It's fantastic. The writing is crisp and pleasurable and exciting. And it, it, it makes you really makes you reevaluate how you tell your own story in a really interesting way. Yeah, I've been meaning to get there. I will get there. Do it. I, yeah, I want to. Can I borrow yours? Yes, of course. I brought it for you, actually, because oh you already God. asked for you it. You are the best. <laughs> I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright, and we are going to give our general book recommendations. So, Octavia, what did you generally like? <laughs> well, generally. <laughs> Since we last saw each other. Generally, generally. I want to urge everyone to read Daddy Issues by Catherine Angel, which is published by Peninsula Press, who, by the way, are a fab indie press doing really great things, so keep your eyes out for them. Um, it's an essay published as a, a little book examining our collective daddy issues, and it's incredibly sharp. Angel points out that in all the recent public discussions about sexual harassment culture, sexual assault and rape, and the people who perpetrate these things, we've mostly forgotten to include our fathers in the mix. Um, and it's an incredibly cleverly observed analysis of how the father as a figure culturally can serve to excuse and also confirm patriarchy in very insidious ways that still remain quite un unexamined. Um, she looks at how f daughters can be used as validators for their father and their ways of excusing the father's bad behavior as men. And she gets into it about Ivanka Trump, for example, and how, you know, if the, the bad man has his daughter still on his team, then it kind of validates him and he can separate his persona as a man in the world and then from his persona as a father. Mm. And also that all that stuff you hear when men are like, as the father of daughters, you know, it's, it's bullshit and it's creepy. Um, she also looks at examples from psychoanalysis. There's quite a lot of Winnicott in there, some from fairy tales, from pop culture, art, literature, making a really compelling case for why this is another branch of the conversation that really needs to be had. Um, as she says, it's hard to reckon with where you come from. It's hard to disentangle the ranting, raving brutes from the modern, civilised fathers. It's hard to figure out where to pledge your allegiance. And I think it's very important to do so. So, yeah, I, I really do it, get it, read it. Sounds great. I'm a big fan of hers. Yeah. And I loved Unmastered, her first book. So. Yeah, her work is so, it's very concise. She's a, she's a smart, interesting thinker. So, yeah. Hit it, hit it. What about you? Well, of all of the books I read over the summer, I think the one that I would recommend above all else is Department of Speculation or Dept. Yes. A Speculation by Jenny Offal, which you have been telling me to read for years. It's I so believe. Good. Yeah. I think you might have even recommended it. I think maybe also just show. a shout out to Anna Watkins who introduced me to that book. It's so good. It's the kind of book you should press into the hands of your friends. Yes. Anna Watkins is a mutual friend and I can also endorse her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big yeah. shout out to yeah. Anna Wilkins. We endorse you. <laughs> we love you. This is a novella published in 2014. It's a very short book. It's only 177 pages. And rather than 
a continuous narrative. It's sort of a series of vignettes, which apparently I'm into these days, about a marriage in contemporary New York. The writing is fragmented, but it's so perfectly crafted. You know, it's one of those books where you feel every sentence should be there and is in the perfect place and has found the perfect construction. And I read it in almost one sitting. It's also a book that takes things like marriage, childbearing, the home, domesticity seriously in this way that felt uncompromising and feminist, but also really fascinating. Um, And you know how much I love books about everyday things. Your absolute fave. The extraordinariness of ordinariness. Um, And it's also fundamentally interrogating these things. The female narrator grapples with her aspiration to be an art monster, but a simultaneous desire to have a family and live domestically. And it's also about betrayal, about what happens when a marriage breaks down and how you build that back up. And um, it, it, it just is extraordinary. Yeah, I second that. It is very uh, pertinent. Also, just to reference Gia Tolentino one more time, she refers to this book in Trick Mirror. Yeah, I'm going hard over there. Can yeah. clip. I was very pleased to see that when I was reading it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Deborah Levy, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us via email litfriction at gmail.com. We will be back in a couple of weeks for our show with Zadie fucking Smith. Uh-huh. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs> <laughs>